Okay, okay, let's get started tonight. Thanks for coming out to session number eight of the parables of Jesus, and uh, we'll open in prayer together. Father, I thank you for these parables, for your word. I thank you most of all that you gave us ears to hear. For the parables, uh, not everyone's going to get it, and it is indeed a mystery, but tonight I pray that we would be those who have ears to hear, and your spirit would show us uh, not just the physical manifestation of a, of a story, but the spiritual, heavenly truth that you want to reveal to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Something interesting about session eight and forward. If you were here early on, I told you to the best of my ability, I tried to do the parables in a chronological order. So the parables, that like the parable of the sower, looks like it's maybe the, one of the first ones he ever did. And tonight, we're getting into what we believe to be the final months of Jesus' ministry before he's crucified on the cross. So, you might think, well, what's the big deal? Um, the tone changes. It changes, and you'll see some of that tonight. The, tonight, we're dealing with um, the lost, and the tone starts to change. So, um, we've come a long way from the parable of the sower. Until now, um, he's in the final months of his ministry, and we're going to begin tonight with a parable, at least in my sequence, number 23. It's, it's the best guess I can on the order. It's parable number 23, and we'll call it the invited guest. <clears throat> Luke chapter 14. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in seats of honor near the head of the table, you see the scene? I've seen this happen before, quite frankly, it's funny. So everybody coming to the dinner wants to get the best seat at the table, right? And Jesus is watching this. So he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the place of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, Give this person your seat. Now, how's that going to make you feel? But this big. Give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, now here comes his counsel. Instead, just when you arrive there, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Just go on and take the worst seat. Then, when your host sees you, he will come and say, Friend, we have a better place for you. And then you'll be honored in front of the, all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Now, now, let's stop for a moment. Sometimes when you get into these stories, you start to forget. He's not really telling you about going to dinner. Okay? It, you can lose this if you're not real careful. You think he's telling you about going to dinner? This is a revelation of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about spiritual truth. So you, you got to make sure when you read this that you're, you're doing the interpretation in your own mind. For those who, here it comes, here it comes. So for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then he turns to his host and he says, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back. And that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Then, at the resurrection of the righteous, now we're at the resurrection of the last day. We're not talking about dinner, are we? Then, at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Attitude. This is Jesus' counsel on attitude and arrogance. Where you put yourself in the pecking order of mankind and the group. 
And he's talking to people who understood that because remember how many times have we talked in these sessions about the Jews and the Samaritans? What's the pecking order of Jews and Samaritans? Jews, Samaritans, right? They had this idea about they could determine someone's rank or value. And Samaritans were low value and Jews were high value. Jesus is teaching something here. Arrogance and humility. Arrogance wants to lift and exalt self. And I'll probably use this term several times. It's like the idea of self-promotion. Self-promotion. Everybody wants promotion. Just don't act like you don't because we all do. The problem is not with wanting promotion. The problem is you doing it to yourself. If somebody else promotes you, it's a good thing. And isn't that what this story's about? You go on and take the worst seat. Somebody comes in and they, they promote you to a better seat. You didn't do that. They did that. But self-promotion is you go on and value yourself real high and grab a good chair. And then when he asks you to scoot down, you feel like an idiot. Humility wants to purposefully take a lower position than others. And last week, remember last week we touched on this, when, when people come into the church and you, you're in their seat, you got that pillow, you dared sit in somebody's pillow chair. Well, it's the same idea this Sunday when everything's crowded. You, you know what? When you're on the out, where's the prime seats at Nineveh? Come on, be honest. I always. Out on the, out on the edges. Okay? Out on the edges. Perry scooted in. It's too late. See, I had to make you move. See? So where's the prime seats? They're on the outside edge. And what happens when our visitors come in? They, they don't, we're going to make them scoot into the middle? You see, it, it, there's something about how we think. You know, I, I get it. I, I do understand. It's pretty humbling to be forced to go down in public. While it's pretty amazing to be lifted up in public, this is Jesus' story and his advice. And, and let's just make it simple. Don't try to exalt yourself. Don't, don't try to to self-promote, go ahead and assume the lowest possible position. It's the safest and the best way. And, 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 and let's just go and say something. The world self-promotes. That's how, how do you get ahead in the world? Self-promotion. Don't you wait for somebody to do it for you because you're not going to get it. So you self-promote, you move up, you move up. I get it. That's how the world operates. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be so different. Who on the earth could have been more at self-promotion than Jesus? And yet, who was more humble than Jesus? There you go. He's the pattern. So let's jump over to Romans chapter 12. And it says this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. We're supposed to be different. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Now, what do you think that might be in this application? I'm not going to try to promote myself. I'm going to take the low position as a servant and let the people around me who get to know me, let them do the promotion instead of me. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect because of the privilege and authority God has given me, Paul says, I give each of you this warning. You ready? Don't think you are better than you really are. What is self-promotion? It's the opposite of that sentence. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given you or given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. Now, we're talking about the church. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. Now, notice something. We're different parts of the body, but we all belong to each other. What does that mean? Equal value. From God's eyes, we all have equal value, equal status in God's eyes. 
And just because some parts of the body maybe have more visibility, it doesn't make them more valuable. We all have equal value in God's sight. Self-promotion, don't do it. Let things come to you in the body of Christ. And I want to pause for a moment. I was thinking about this this afternoon. If I've learned anything in ministry in the last 20-something years that's really been valuable to me personally in the ministry, here it is. Don't push. Let things happen. I've noticed that, that pushing can become self-promotion. Even if it's my idea. Because self-promotion comes in many forms. And, and sometimes self-promotion is that your idea is better than everybody around you. And I'm self-promoting. And, and then why I say, if I've learned anything, and boy, I'm a different guy now than I was 20 years ago when I started this journey. Now, um, I still have a dominant character, personality, I get that, but I, I have learned to just, just let things come. Let them come. I think working into the power of the Holy Spirit works way better when you just, just, just let, respond to what's coming into your life, into your circle. Just, just let it come. Don't, don't try to push because you don't know that you're self-promoting when you're pushing your agenda, your ideas like, hey, I'm smarter than you. But you are pushing your agenda. You're self-promoting. It reminds me, and here's the first thing I thought about. How many of y'all ever watched America's Got Talent or what's those things where people come in talent shows and they sing a song? And, and I've watched some of those over the years, and this person's on TV, and they're singing, and they're the worst singer on this planet. <laughs> and they don't know it. And they, do, they, they think they're good. They really do. Unless they're paying them a lot of money to do that on TV. They really think they're good. But they're awful. And they're just bellowing out this horrible noise. And, and the judges are like, oh. And I'm thinking, oh, turn that off. But, you know, you might think, don't value yourself higher than you are. You know, think of yourself with an honest perspective. Maybe you think you can sing. Maybe you can think you can do all of the, Maybe you think that you can do all things that you really not very good at. But if somebody else told you you were good at that, it would be different, wouldn't it? Unless they're a liar, too. <laughs> but you see the difference? If somebody else evaluates that, that, like somebody else is lifting you up, then it's probably pretty good representation that there's some truth in that. But if you... Or the one elevating yourself, maybe you're just deceived. This also applies to those we associate with. Don't put yourself in a higher class of those around you. And, and I've seen this in the church before. Don't think that you're better than somebody else who's here. Because of your background or something, don't, don't even do it. Why? Because God will forcibly humble you and bring you down while he lifts them up. He'll, he'll reset the table. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Amen. And don't think you know it all. Because you don't. And I don't either. Now, this is interesting. I've always been convicted by this very specific teaching of Jesus. Here, let me read it to you. He turned to his host and said, when, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, for they'll invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. If that's literal, why is that convicting? If that's literal, we're in trouble. That's why it convicts me. And I believe that's literal. Let's let it do to you what it does to me. You know what? 
We, we like to think we don't look down on anybody, but when's the last time you invited somebody in that category to come over to your house for dinner? You think Jesus would? Yeah, I do. Thank you. That's why it's convicting. Why? Why is it convicting? Because in reality, the whole banquet story, what we just read, is God's story. It's the real world we all live in today. And here's why. Listen carefully. He, God, has invited us in our sin and in our poverty to come and take a place at his banquet table to partake of the wedding supper of the Lamb. He invited Terry Cooper to his banquet table. And I'm the least of these on the earth. So this story is our story. Right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I deserve no seat at the table. In fact, why don't we just say that out loud together tonight. I deserve no seat at the table. One more time. I deserve no seat at the table. That's us. So the moment in your life you've come to this conclusion that you've ranked yourself up here and you, you now deserve a seat at the banquet table of Jesus, you are in the marketplace of self-promotion. And something bad's going to happen. I have earned no seat at the table. Knowing this and never forgetting this truth is the proper heart of humility before God. It is His grace that allows me to sit at this table. Okay, parable number 24. And I got to tell you, if some of y'all already noticed, there's eight pages in tonight's handout. Did y'all notice that? I'm going to try to pull all this off in time. So this one is the lost coin. Luke 15. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Okay? 10 coins, one's lost. Won't she light a lamp? sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds that one coin. And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. Now, why in the world is Jesus telling this story? It kind of, it's just one coin, some ladies. It's not about coins, is it? In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents. He's connecting this one repentant sinner to that coin that was found underneath the dresser. He's, he's going to take this earthly story and create this heavenly image of the kingdom of heaven. Luke's gospel puts this one right after the parable of the lost sheep. And, and, I, and here's the point. Lost sheep, lost coin, Jesus uses it. Why? What is it about the word loss that we struggle with? Because the point of the parables is the severity of the word lost. Now we're going to get into what that, why I make such a big deal out of that. This is where one of my favorite phrases come in. I have said it a million times here at the church. That I believe that if you believed you were lost and Jesus had the power to save you, I believe you'd believe in Jesus. I'll do it a little slower. I believe that if you believed you were lost and Jesus had the power to save you, I believe you'd believe in Jesus. See, I think the simplicity of the gospel is in that statement. I firmly, 100% believe that if you truly believed you were, here's the lost, giant word, lost. Do you know what that word means? Because he does, and that's the parable. I believe that if you believed you were lost and Jesus had the power to save you, I believe you'd believe in Jesus and you wouldn't be lost anymore. So let's examine the question to see what might prevent people from coming to Jesus. So do you not know and believe that you are lost and bound for death, grave, and hell? So let's just fundamentally look, why is Jesus telling the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep. What's the point of the parable? Do you not believe you're lost? And what's the word lost? Do you believe that on the other side of lost is the sin, a grave, and hell? Do you not know and believe that Jesus has the power to save a person from death, grave, and hell? Is it, what is it about the word lost that people struggle with? 
Because that's the parable. Do you not believe he wants to and desires to save and rescue you? Do you not know that you're sick and dying, destined for the grave and hell without making peace with God before you? Do you not know, do you not know what loss means? So let me put it another way. Does anybody actually believe that you'll never die? I mean, just doing a physical question. I mean, do you know anybody 130? I don't. What happened? They died. Do you think it'll never happen to you? I've always heard the first step to healing and addiction is to acknowledge that you have one. Makes sense to me. The key to this heavenly parable of Jesus is this. You ready? The coin is lost. I smile because it's too easy. No, it's not too easy. It's just true. The coin is lost. And we're not referring to money here. And neither is Jesus. There is an urgency to turn the lost coin into a found coin. Jesus' parable is an urgency. Do you see it? It's like this urgency to turn this lost coin into a found coin. And it's not about money. Rejoicing is not possible in the lost condition. Never is rejoicing. True joy, true joy, rejoicing is not possible while you remain in the lost condition. Let me give you another example. Unless you're delusional, there's no way that you can find joy deep inside of you if you know that in front of you is a grave and on the other side of the grave is hail with a burning fire. And that's your future. You're in a lost condition that if you die, and you're going to die, you're going to go into the grave, and on the other side of the grave, you're going to fall headlong into the lake of burning fire in the darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, I'm having a good day. What about you? You see, there's no way that you can find joy deep down inside, true joy, knowing that that's mine. Why? Because you cannot find joy in a lost condition. Joy is found when the lost condition has been addressed, and now I am no longer lost, I am found. This is the parable of Jesus. This is it. That's why I say, I, I believe that if you believed you were lost, and Jesus said the power to save you, I believe you believe in Jesus. If you're having trouble with rejoicing, and, and here's the point for the church. If you're having tr trouble, and a lot of church people, quite frankly, do. Uh, how can I say this and not get in trouble? <laughs> Probably not possible. I see a lot of people who claim Christianity, and it, you, you don't look joyful at all to me. I, I just, a lot of people don't look like heaven's coming. It looks like you've just had some sour pickles or something. <laughs> Why? Um, this is where I'll get in trouble. I come to both services. Y'all maybe have noticed that. So 8.30 and 10.30. 10.30, way better singing than 8.30. Now, people are going to tell me, well, they've been up longer. <laughs> I think there's a truth to that. And that's not my point. My point is, I... I I try to worship during the worship time as much as possible, but I also can't help but notice a lot of people struggle to worship in either service. Why? Why? What, what is it? What, what? If you were falling headlong into the fire of lake of burning sulfur and the Son of God reached down and grabbed you and pulled you out, would you sing a song? Would you, would you sing a song? I'd sing a song. I don't even know how I could stop singing a song. 
You see what he's doing? You see what this parable is about? There's an urgency for moving from this lost to found condition. Well, you know why? Because you can't get joy in a lost condition. But the problem is this. If you're having trouble with rejoicing and worshiping today, you should probably check your lost found condition. I'm not being crude or rude or mean. You should check your lost found condition. They are also rejoicing in heaven when the lost realize they are lost and become found saved in Christ. Now, that just pumps me up even more to know that Jesus says when, when a person on earth is lost and they become found, there's a celebration in heaven. How cool is that? Because you think angels, well, angels, who knows what they're doing? You I mean, why are they worried about us? No, they're having a party. When somebody goes from lost to found, the angels, they have a celebration going on. They care because you know what? They know the severity of the lost found issue. They know how critical this is. I've often imagined a scene in heaven of angels rejoicing when someone's baptized. One of my favorite things about Nineveh, when somebody gets baptized here, everybody jumps up and claps, and it's like somebody's just dunked in a basketball game, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah! And, and everybody's cheering and hooping and hollering. I go to a lot of churches, and you, you think that maybe they left them in the water, and they're just like, oh, no. <laughs> Parable number, this is a good time to get off of that one. All right, this is the big one for tonight. And the reason why this has eight pages is the lost son. Uh, you probably know it as the parable of the prodigal son, which is a very old English word, prodigal. This is one of the most famous and quoted of all Jesus' parables. It is directly connected. Are you with me? It is directly connected to the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. So you can probably tell where this is going. I preached a sermon called The Lost Son Stairway, the sermon that none of you saw. You know why? It was during COVID. You might have watched it on video. I actually preached it here to a camera that nobody was in the audience um, on May 10th, 2020. So when I was putting all this together, I thought, well, nobody saw it that time. I'll use some of it today. So I'm going to use a huge part of that, or at least some part of that tonight, because um, it fits. It's interesting that the Gospel of Luke is the only Gospel that records this remarkable story of Jesus. You know that? One of the four. So I want to approach the story tonight from a unique perspective. And here's what I want you to get. I want you to think about this parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, as a set of steps. Like a stairway. That's how I'm going to paint this. The lost son is a story about a younger brother who chooses to depart from his father and thus begins a step-by-step -step journey into a pit of what I'm going to call tonight a pit of uh, despair and great loss. It's a step-by-step -step removal of the younger son the younger brother, from the father, step by step, heading to the pit of great despair and loss. That's not the reason why this story is often preached. That pit of despair and great loss is followed by a different set of steps, a different stairway. And the reason most people like this is because at the end of the story, there is another stairway that doesn't go down to the pit of despair, but there's a stairway that comes up out of the pit of despair, and you find yourself back at the Father's house. But here's what happened to me. When I was studying this lost son parable in the Gospel of Luke, suddenly I was reminded of another significant stairway event that also included, of all things, a younger brother. This Old Testament younger brother stairway type event took place almost 2,000 years before Jesus' parable, prodigal son, we're studying tonight. This Old Testament stairway event happened to a man named Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So I want to do something. Let's start with the Jacob stairway to heaven. Hopefully you're familiar with that story. 
in order to set the stage so I can tonight connect it to the prodigal son or the lost son stairway. So let's go to the Old Testament. Jacob is a younger brother, and he has just deceived his father Isaac into giving him the blessing. And when his older brother Esau finds out what happens, Jacob runs for his life, right? That's the story. Jacob is actually running from the death threats of his older brother Esau, but his actions have caused Jacob to depart from the presence of his father. Here's what you got to get. He has gone to his father to get the blessing, and when he got the blessing, he runs away from the source of the blessing. Isaac, he stuck, because he did it with deceit, now he's running for his life. Jacob is running away from the very source of the blessing. And what is it in the Old Testament story? The father, Isaac. He's the source of the blessing, and now he's running from it. While on the run, Jacob experiences another father, not Isaac, God the Father, and a stairway from heaven. Here we go. Let me read it to you. Genesis 28. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba, and he traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he, Jacob, arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. He's having this vision. And he saw angels of God going up and down on the stairway. At the top of the stairway was the Lord. And he, the Lord, said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather, Abraham, and the God of your daddy, your father, the one you're running away from right now, Isaac. The ground you are lying on, God said to him, belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Jacob's encounter with God reveals a stairway to heaven. Remember, Jacob's name will eventually be changed to what? Say it out loud. Israel. There were angels on the stairway going up and down. This stairway he saw travels both ways. God the Father is at the top of the stairway. The Lord speaks to Jacob from the top of the stairs, the stairway to heaven. The Lord confirms to Jacob that all the covenant promises that have been given to his father Abraham and his daddy Isaac now belong to you, Jacob. God tells Jacob that the ground that he is laying on belongs to him and his future family, his future children. It's a gift from God. And all the covenant promises of God will go through Jacob, Israel, and Jacob's seed, his lineage, to all the nations, the people of the earth, whether they're Jew or Gentile. The blessing will flow through this man laying on his back on a rock watching a stairway that night. And there's more. Remember, Jacob, he's the younger brother in the story. Esau is the older. Jacob is the younger. He's unmarried. He's without any children at this point. The stairway to heaven, then a thing was hard enough to grasp, but now this single unmarried man all alone on the run is going to be the person through which the whole world will know God and receive his blessings. Jacob didn't know about the stairway to heaven when he laid down that night. Now, this is important. When he laid down that night, he didn't lay down that night thinking, well, I'll see if I can meet God out here. He didn't know about the stairway. He didn't know about any of this when he laid down that night. Jacob didn't know that the Lord was in that place. There's a lot that can happen when you don't know that the Lord is in this place, that he is actually with you even though you didn't think he was with you. There's a lot you can miss when you don't know the Lord is in this place. Now, with that foundation and that stairway Jacob revealed, now I want to go to the other stairway because I want to do this. I want to tie them together. 
Now, let's go back to the New Testament, the stairway, the prodigal son, lost son stairway. This stairway is more symbolic than literal. But Jesus' story of the lost son reveals a way to go up and go down. You do it step by step, decision by decision, thus the stairway event. Do you think you fall away or go toward God with a single moment? Typically, there are step-by-step-by-step events that lead you in either direction, toward or away from God. This time, in the New Testament, in Jesus' story, these steps don't go up to heaven, not in the beginning. They go down to the grave, down to the pit of despair and great loss in Jesus' parable. The steps in the beginning of this story, they don't walk toward God. They walk away from God. These steps don't go up. They go down, at least in the beginning. Jesus' parable of the lost son describes a step-by-step departure from the father, a stairway to the pit of despair and great loss. There is joy at the top of heaven's stairway. Angels are going up and down on Jacob's stairway when the lost sheep are found. Remember the lost sheep, the lost coin? Jesus says in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin both deal with what? The departure. Are you with me? This is important. Both of these parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin, deal with the departure, a separation from that which is right and true. Both stories end with repentance that leads to rejoicing in heaven. And I see angels rejoicing on Jacob's stairway. Now, Jesus opens up the lost son story, and the symbolic stairway will appear again. But this story doesn't begin with a stairway to heaven. No. These stairs aren't going up to God. These stairs are going down, away from the Father, down to the pit of despair and great loss. Now, with all of that, I'm trying to connect this. Let's read the story. Verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. It's called a parable. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share. Let that sink in for a moment. I want my share of your estate now before you die, you old geezer. That's what it looks like. I want what's mine now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. That sounds a little bit like Jacob's story. Jacob wanted his share before his father Isaac dies, right? This fa- the father in Jesus' story agrees and gives the blessed inheritance to the rebellious younger son. Jesus is connecting all three of the lost stories. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. He's going to tie every one of them together when he says, to illustrate this point further. That's his words. To illustrate this point further. This means that Jesus is connecting the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. All three are going to make the same exact point in the end. A man had two sons. The older son, listen, is the natural heir, right? Under Jewish law, who had the rights, the firstborn. The older son has the, he's the natural heir. Do you remember Esau? He was also the older son, and he was also the natural heir. Jacob, in the Old Testament story, is running away from his father Isaac and running away from the blessing that he had previously been offered by his father. But how can you receive the promised blessing of the father if you're on the run, if you've departed, if your back is to the father? While running, Jacob, in the Old Testament, finds what? A stairway. 
So what about this younger son in Jesus's parable? And what does this have to do with a stairway? Stay with me. Stairways have steps and you take them how? At my age, you take them one at a time. The younger son in Jesus' story is about to take the first step away from the father. What was this first step? It's called self-centeredness, selfishness. So tonight, I think I've labeled it self-promotion. Everybody listen. What's the first step in his departure from the father in which he sought the blessing from? Selfishness. It's the first step in the stairway that leads to the pit of despair and great loss. This first step is when your will takes precedent over the will of the Father and other people. This is the first step toward the pit of despair and great loss. What is it? Let's just call it what it is. It is to live a self-centered life. Do people who live a self-centered life know they're living a self-centered life? Usually no. Usually no. Do people who are indulging in self-promotion know they're indulging in self-promotion? Usually no. Do people who are lost know they're lost? Usually no. Stay with me. This is the first step toward the pit of great despair and loss, a self-centered life. Notice the younger son, Jesus' parables, next step. I want you to picture a life that is walking downward and away from the Father. He's just doing it one step at a time. Verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and he moved, he moved to a distant land and there he wasted all of his money on wild living. This next step is called separation. It begins with self-centeredness. It moves to separation. That's what steps on a stairway do. They separate you. They take you further and further away from your starting point. So what do we got? Everybody listen carefully. It begins, this stairway away from the Father and His blessing begins with you're self-centered, and now you're separated step by step. And where are you going? Your back is to the Father in the scene. Everybody listen. You're not walking toward Him. You're walking away from Him. You've turned your back on the Father. And the Father was the source of the blessing. But now... Step by step, you become self-centered, and now there's a gap between you. You're separated. Now the younger son is in a distant land, far away from the father, but he's on a stairway downward, downward, downward. He doesn't know it yet because it looks like and feels like fun. So far, what? When you turn 16 and you finally got that car and you got to separate from the father and your own wheels, what did you think it felt like? fun. Lee Moore's back there. Lee Moore and I were driving in my Corvair one day and I felt like I was, I was 16 and I thought, oh my, I've got freedom and we're, sitting, we're up there in the junior high parking lot and I'm in that Corvair. I paid I don't, $350 for that, I believe. And Lee, there's one of them says, kick it. And I kicked it and it spun around and I hit that telephone pole in one second. <laughs> Crushed it. I had slidden into the pit of great despair and loss in that moment. But in that moment, you know what it felt like? Freedom. Freedom was freedom until the telephone pole reached the dash. You know, most people, it feels like fun until you hit this next step. It's called reality. Verse 14, this is called reality. About this time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. It's not fun anymore. My self-centered, separated from the Father life looked like fun, but I'm hungry. I don't like this. Self-centered to separation have moved you into reality. You know what the reality is? Can I whisper? You're lost. 
you're lost. You don't know you're lost, but you're lost. The reality is when you notice how far you have fallen, how far you've traveled from your father's house, these steps, this stairway isn't going up. They're going down, down to the pit of despair and great loss. But there is one more step to the bottom, ready? <laughs> As if it couldn't get worse, you're all alone. And you did it. You did it. Loneliness. That's what you find at the bottom of the stairway to the pit of despair and great loss. And before I even get into it, um, there's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions about the worst thing about hell. I don't even know how you could ever conclude the worst thing about hell. But I want to tell you something. Loneliness would have to be near the top of the list. I am convinced you will never know anybody again. Your self-centered life, you will live with your self-centered self. In a pit of great darkness, conscious, painful existence. Without any comfort of association with anyone ever again. It is the bottom of the pit of great despair. That's what you find at the bottom. Verse 15, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. If you're Jewish, you understand how bad that would be. That's, that's at the bottom of the pit of great despair. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one. Do you see it? No one. He's, he's all alone. Now, do y'all think this is about pigs? Y'all think this is about farming? This is about lost. No one gave him anything. Self-centered to separation, to reality, to all alone. Four steps to the pit of despair and great loss, all alone with nothing. This is the bottom, the pit of the stairway to despair and great loss, all alone. Listen, what's hell? What is hell? What is Jesus? The kingdom of heaven is like. What are the parables? The kingdom of heaven is like. All alone, nothing. What is it? It's the eternal destination of the lost. All alone, nothing. Darkness, you got no light, you got no companionship, you just got you. You. Self centered existence forever. And you're in pain, suffering. Why do you think Jesus is telling this remarkable story? And why would anyone take this set of steps into this pit of despair and great loss? Why? How do you get from the father's house? Do you know how this story began? How do you get from the father's house to being all alone in the pit of despair and great loss? How? One step at a time. You're going the wrong way. And the first sign that ought to be is this. Your back is to God rather than your face. Do you think you're going to get closer to God when your back's to him? It's not possible. You're going the wrong way, the wrong set of steps. Self-centered life, that was the first step. Give me what I want. What do he say in the parable? Give me my share. I want what I want. Self-centered life. Listen, danger. That's how it starts. Number two, self-centered moves to separation, to reality, to all alone. Step by step, it's a downward spiral. Sometimes, and for a while, this self-centered life feels good until you hit the telephone pole or find the pig pen. But they're not going up. These steps aren't going up. They're going down away from God. So what do you do when you find yourself in this pit of despair and great loss, knowing that your foolish choices and your self-centered life put you there. Somebody didn't do this to you. You did it to you. 
What do you do when you find yourself all alone with nothing? No hope, no future, and you're in a pit. That's why Jesus tells the parable. That's the best news tonight. What do you do? That's why he tells you the parable. That's why he tells this story, and that's why this story is directly connected to the lost sheep and the lost coin. This is heaven's message. It's not a parable about pigs and, and farming. This is heaven's message to mankind about the lost becoming found. To show you what to do when you find yourself in this pit of great despair. Or what if you see someone else? By the way, I think this is important I bring this up. Maybe it's not you that's in the pit of great despair, but maybe somebody you love is. What do you do? What do you do? You tell them about the other stairway. The lost son stairway. This one goes up. This one takes you back to the Father. This one is a stairway to heaven itself. And what can we learn about the Father in the lost son and the stairway to Jacob to help us understand this Jesus parable out of this pit? Because I told you I wanted to connect the two. The Father is at the top of the stairway in Jacob's story and in Jesus' story. But he communicates hope a way out of the pit from the top of the stairway. He communicates to the pit a hope. The father is at the top of the stairway and he makes promises of freedom and reconciliation to those while they're in the pit. Jacob, the younger brother, was running from his father when he found this stairway from heaven. Jesus, the lost son story, was also a younger brother running from his father when he found this stairway to heaven. Jacob, the younger brother, thought he needed to use deceit to get the wealth of the father, but the blessing of the father was there all along. The younger brother in Jesus' story thought that he had to walk away from the father to find blessings in his self-centered life. Both Jacob and Jesus' younger brother example found God while when? Well, they were all alone in the pit of despair and great loss. So let's be honest with each other tonight in our reality. That's where lost people live. Where did these two guys find the Father? When they were in the pit of despair and great loss. That is where lost people are. They're in a pit of despair and great loss. They just don't know it yet because their provision has not yet run out, but one day it will. The pit of despair and great loss is a picture of the grave. And there's only one way to get out of the pit called the grave. What is it? Do you know how to get out of the pit? What is it? This pit of despair, this stairway that keeps going down, down, down until, until you're bankrupt and all along. What is it? It's the grave. How do you get out of the grave? You must turn to the Father. There's only one way to get out. You must turn toward the Father. That's why Jesus is telling this story. This is the most beautiful part of Jacob, Old Testament, and Jesus' New Testament story. This is the most beautiful part of Jacob and Jesus' story. I love it. The Father's love is revealed when you're all alone and in the pit of despair and great loss at the bottom of the staircase where the lost live is where it's revealed. Here we go, verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, what's his status? He's all alone. He's hungry. He's lost everything. He's in a pig pen. When he finally comes to his senses, he says to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to the Father. That's why Jesus is telling the story. I don't have to stay in the pit. I don't have to stay in the grave. I'd like to go home to the Father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy to be 
called your son. Please take me as a hired servant. So let's break that down. I'll go home. I'll turn around. Instead of my back to him, the father, I'll turn around and I'll face him. You know, it takes some humility to face the father after you've walked away from him. But that's the only way to get home. Confession, repentance. Confession, I am no, I have sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Confession and repentance. You see the power? One of the most beautiful scenes in the Bible. Do you know why I would say that? The one at the top of the stairs says that there's great rejoicing in heaven when a person leaves this pit and turns and heads toward home. There's a party in heaven. Not condemnation. Not, I told you so. But rejoicing on this stairway to heaven. As I read this next section... Can you see how wonderful repentance is? And I need to stop for a moment and say this. When you're in the pit and you're in the grave and you're lost, more than likely repentance looks like in that moment the last possible thing you want to do. Because it looks in itself like failure, but it is your only chance at victory. That's it. This is it. And you need to come to this conclusion. Repentance is the most wonderful word I wonder in the Bible. It's a restored relationship with God. That which was broken can now be returned to wholeness. It's the stairway that takes you back to the Father's presence. This, it's a wonderful word. So why do, you, why do you resist repentance? Because it is the breaking of your own will. I don't want to. You stay, then you'll stay in the grave. You'll stay in the pit. Freedom from the grave. Here we go, verse 20. So he returned home to the father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned. I always pictured this, that he's rehearsed that the whole way home. Uh, no, no, no. I, Father, I have sinned against both you, heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The son is repenting and the father's kissing. The son's repenting, the father's kissing. You see it? The, these new steps are upward and they look hard while you're in the pit but there is a supernatural power that lifts a person up toward God the Father while you're in the pit the Son, the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the supernatural power that lifts a person up from those steps toward the Father What? when you confess your sin and you repent of those sins He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from unrighteousness that in itself lifts you out of this pit of despair and great loss. It takes you out of the grave. Your back is not to God. Your face is now to God, which means you got a chance to go home. You can go home. Jacob said, what? I'm going back to the Old Testament story. Surely God is in this place and I didn't realize it. Wow, do you know how big that is? God is here and he knows my name and he's offered me a chance. He calls us from the top of the stairway. So let's go to the very end of the parable, verse 22. But his father said to his servant, well, he's just confessed. I'm not worthy to be your son. I, I, I'm not worthy. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now he has returned to life. He was lost. You see it? This is the parable. He was lost and now he's found. So the party began. The finest robe, a beautiful ring, new shoes for your sore feet. You're not a servant. You're my son. You listen, you're not a servant. You're my son. You're not alone. You're in the family again. This is the resurrection from the dead. This is how you get out of the pit. This is the only way out of the grave. This is when the angels in heaven rejoice. The lost sheep 
the lost coin, the lost son has been found. The angels on the stairway of God sing because the lost coin has been found. The dead are now alive and out of the pit. The lost are now found and back with the Father all alone now has a family. All alone, self-centered darkness now is in the family with the Father. The pit of despair has been replaced with ribeyes and a celebration. Kill the fatted calf. Yes, listen, the older brother acted like he was an 8 o'clock a.m. guy in the parable we covered a few weeks ago. Y'all remember that? Don't tell me you forgot it already. The older brother acted like the 8 o'clock a.m. crowd in Jesus' parable of the vineyard. But you know what the good news is? That did not change the outcome of this story. I believe that if you believe you were lost and Jesus had the power to save you, I believe you'd believe in Jesus. And I did that in one hour. <laughs> Woo. Woo. I'm sweating too. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us in the pit. You have made this way out of the grave. And if we would turn and face you. Your power would lift us out of the darkness and bring us home. And we thank you tonight for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.